All right. Welcome once again to How to Pakistan. We're recording just a few minutes with what's left of 2016. You'll be hearing this in 2017. And I have with me, as usual, Musharraf. How are things? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Assalamu alaikum to all our listeners. And a big salam to you as well, Fassi. It's, uh, it's, it's been a long year. It's been a really long year, and it's a year that I think most people wanted to end. And it's interesting how sort of fate conspires against us. I think the World Astrological Society, or whichever one that looks at time, has added one second to this year to uh, make up for some time adjustments. We've gained a second. So as early as we wanted it to leave, its last hurrah has been one more second to it. I guess a second significance is that if you put 60 of those together, there's a minute. And if you put 60 of those together, there's an hour. I, I, thought, I'd, I thought I'd share that profound insight on time with you, Fussy, uh, as we... <laughs> You're a walk, talking atomic clock, my man. <laughs> it's, uh, it's how I roll, bro. It's uh, it's how I roll. It's been, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, yeah. I, I have many other profundities uh, that um, I'm keen to share. If only you would give me a chance, Fasizaka. <laughs> Look, we we're in the summer. We'll just delay things, but you can discuss Celsius and degrees then. Okay. Yeah, that works. Am I allowed to bring in the, the Kelvin, conversation the Kelvin sort of uh, aspect of uh, temperature? <laughs> well, did you see what I just did there? Yeah, I just dropped. It, I, I think dropped it a cable. Be, uh, yeah. You just put in the special K. <laughs> we got special. <laughs> we got special K, man. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the best part about recording this, of course, is fussy that you and I are trying to be trippy as, as we try and make up for the fact that we are two old losers um, and, and we're sitting, uh, <laughs> I'm sitting in my, in my living room <laughs> and you're sitting in your living room and we're, we're recording this over Skype at 11.57 p.m. December 31st, 2016. In less than three minutes, the clock shall turn. And uh, yeah. we would have entered a new year. Are you a big New Year person? Yeah. No, I don't really. I, I I seem to remember a couple of New Years I've attended, but I don't by and large. I actually don't like most holidays. Um, I mean, I love holidays, but I mean, I don't like. Being is this because you're? Be happy. Is this because you're a super super intellectual of the left, and you know? Of course, you're very unhappy with the state of the world, and so you can't celebrate anything. Is that is that what's going on? More, I'm just too lazy to go out. <laughs> I'd rather just sit at home and just be happy. So, so, but so, you know, so, I thought so. I'd basically, super intellectual of the left. Super intellectual of the left who loves to sit at home. But I thought I'd ask you a question, and I'd pose it this, this way, which is. You know, we've been saying that 2016 has been this horrendous year, and most people have, I've even seen a spate of articles that have tried to assess it empirically, whether this was the worst year ever. Obviously, it's not that, but 2016 was bad for the world. But 
maybe not so bad for Pakistan. What do you think? Well, I, I'm not even sure it was bad for the world, Fussy. Um, okay. Like, that, what do you think wasn't so bad? Well, hold on a second. I just heard a couple of uh, a couple of Gunshot? extraordinary, extraordinarily loud booms. So I'm just collecting myself and uh, hoping nobody got hurt. Um, I think that 2016. For, first of all, I think that looking at time from the lens of a calendar year, uh, I think they're called Gregorian years. Um, I, I don't, I don't know if it makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, it's, of course, it's a unit of time and it's how we measure the start and the end of something. But I, I, uh, I don't see how it's any more empirically sound to look at June 31st to, I guess, July 11th. Uh, yeah, I hope those are those are just firecrackers. I, I'm absolutely sure, inshallah, that they are. You see how easy it is to distract me? Yeah. Uh, actually, I, even I'm hearing the sounds here, so it, it, I'm surprised uh, Pakistan is uh, really into celebrating the new year. Well, Pakistan needs... And maybe the message as it costs everyone, uh, it would, they're probably doing it one second before the rest of the world. I wonder <laughs> if we've adjusted our clock. <laughs> um, I think Pakistanis need excuses to celebrate. We haven't really, we haven't really allowed ourselves to be, uh, to be a nation that, that's comfortable with joy. Uh, it's a, it's weird because we're such a happy, fun-loving people. Uh, we're so incredibly hospitable and incredibly fun that I find it amazing that we find ways to ban Basant. And uh, I don't think anyone who's from Lahore, uh, from, from, from our age group, uh, it's, I think, hard to forget the, uh, the attack on New Year's parties. Uh, in the late nine, well, in the mid nineties and early nineties, uh, of all the evils in the world that the Jumete Talba wanted to fight, uh, a bunch of people getting together and acting foolish uh, uh, in their in, in, in private spaces that was that was exceptionally loud. <laughs> that makes me, that makes me wonder. That makes me wonder where the Jumete Talba in my neighborhood is and why they, why they aren't stamping this shit out. That was. So that was so loud like, that there's two cars on my... Un- want them around. So I'm looking out the window, right? <laughs> exactly. Where's the Jamit when you need them? I'm looking out, out the window, and there's at least two cars whose car alarm systems have been triggered by that last sonic boom. <laughs> that was great. Look... You know, one of the things I'm wondering is that that sort of moral panic around New Year's parties that used to be at least also partly not just um, the Jamiat, but you know, the civil administration would eventually relent and make it somewhat official. And if I maybe I'm wrong, but even I think the PMLN, or at least in the Punjab, had a couple of forays into this where they 
tried to do this as a matter of policy where they were caving in. But, you know, the fact that it's not happening anymore could be one is that, you know, maybe we're not as bothered by it and there's this bigger fish to fry. But I sort of see it metamorphosizing online in some different ways. And it comes out in these really interesting little tidbits. Like when you see a sort of, you know, Western pop superstar that you really liked and, you know, you express some sadness and then you invariably get the, you know, sort of dour, well, you know, there's people starving in the country, you should be sad about that or whatever. And uh, maybe it's not a direct colliery, but uh, sort of that, like you say, that unmitigated joy where as a Pakistani you may like literally any number of things, some of which are very Western and very maybe even alien to most, but you do develop that sort of connection. And I agree. I, I think I've mentioned this once before in this podcast series. When the YouTube ban happened, Nadir Hassan wrote this article, which I liked a central point of it, which was that, you know, we can say that, you know, you can watch some really great engineering how-to videos or learn about science and dark matter. But he says, you know, the true success of bringing YouTube back is that, you know, people deserve to enjoy themselves and watch cats do really cute things. And that should be able to fly as a legitimate sort of reason for having it back. Well, this is kind of, I mean, one way to respond to that argument would be that, you know, um, like literally we should endorse the blind leading the blind. Um, that idiots should reign supreme and that our time should be consumed watching idiotic things. Uh, I, I know that might, sound that might sound harsh, but let's consider the year 2016 and going back yeah, But to I think that's part of just being a person. You need, everyone has different ways of decompressing and, you know, not necessarily taking one out of the mix just because it's pr particularly banal, but there's just so much that people do that is banal and it's perfectly legitimate because it just makes you feel good or it helps you just relax you know what's not helping me relax is the sound of gunshots like you know over my shoulder i mean Can what i really think right now is that you are maybe committing a violent felon and you're just covering up that oh it's from the neighbor's place Wait, wait, so you're suggesting that I, <laughs> you're suggesting that I'm the one firing those shots off, and I'm trying to pin it yeah. on my on my PTI supporting neighbors. It <laughs> <laughs> um, could be plausible. <laughs> of course, that's that's how I roll, baby. Listen, um, I think 2016 was not such a bad year because it really was the year of taking a stand, the idiots taking a stand, right? Uh, and I, I say that tongue-in-cheek, right? But basically, people in Britain decided that they'd had enough of Europe taking advantage of them. Uh, this advantage was mostly comprised of Polish plumbers going to England and finding work because they were exceptionally good at being plumbers because they happened to be engineers with seven or eight year degrees who would work for less money than... And partly because they've 
had one of the few instances of a plumber becoming the prime minister. Sure. That too. <laughs> but really, but really, you know, I mean, this was your value their trade. They sure. elected prime minister. That's a, just a brilliant <laughs> endorsement of their. Uh, yeah, so you were saying. Well, I mean, it's basically that prime minister fellow set the bar so high for once you qualify as a prime minister that many Poles had to leave their country to really uh, to be able to settle for something a little <laughs> more, a little more relaxed, like being being a plumber. Uh, bottom line, a lot of yeah. angering angst in the UK that isn't really based in any rational discourse of any sort. Um, a lot of racism towards Asians, which is which is code for brown people, and especially code for for Pakistanis, um, Indians, and Sri Lankans and Bangladeshis too. But somehow we uh, we uh, we are exceptional in that uh, in that part of the world. And uh, a lot of people were angry, and so they said, you know what, we're going to show the Londoners and all those you know peacenicky types, and they went and voted Britain out of the European Union. And at first blush, of course, this is the revenge of the idiots, and, and the idiots have taken over, and uh, now everybody can watch, uh, proverbi proverbially, everybody can watch YouTube videos of cats, you know, jumping on other cats and rolling around with balls of, balls of yarn. Um, but I think there's much more that's happening there. I think after many, many years, uh, the West has... <laughs> I don't know if you can hear the sustained uh, fire, fireworks or gunfire, uh, but it really is exceptional. Now it's like fireworks because it's got that tailing off sound yeah. of sort of the gunpowder. I'm going to be inhaling that gunpowder shortly. Uh, rather, I'm going to be inhaling the, uh, the fumes of the used gunpowder. Um, the, um, the point being, Fussy, that I think there's something to be said about the improved democratic credentials of the West after Brexit and Trump, because what's happened is that after many years, the West has become comfortable with middle-aged white folks expressing themselves in a way that they wanted to for a long time, and they weren't allowed to. And whilst on the surface, this looks very bad for people like us, because a lot of us, when I say us, I'm talking about people on this side of the world, on this side of the planet, who who have been cajoled and, and nurtured into believing uh, the great myth of uh, the neoliberal dream, that the world can be peaceful, that there can be globalization, that everybody can have four or five iPads and six or seven iPhones and three laptops and two cars, and that everybody can consume, you know, non-carbon sort of energy, ad infinitum, and that everybody can have everything, and that this is possible without, without making difficult choices, uh, that myth has certainly blown up in the face of, of the neoliberal project in Britain and the uh, United States. Uh, and so I think it's a wake-up call for, for people like us in this part of the world to rethink the frameworks within which we assess our country and its progress and to rethink our relationship with the rest of the world and how we position this country and ourselves with respect to the rest of the world. 
So, you know, one of the things that I also sort of wonder about whether it's played into how the world is slowly moving to the right. I, I mean, the Western world is maybe this is still hues of 2008 playing out is that you had this sudden crash. The world's financial system was put in peril. But but what's happened is that with all the stimulus packages, all the different ways of keying around with the economy and trying to get it to go back is what you've got is a recovery that's relatively low inflation, uh, in some places low unemployment in some chronically uh, sort of sick men of Europe, you've got unemployment, but you've also got low growth. And even though you're sort of out of the danger for a lot of people who've somehow gone through the relative boom and bust cycles, they've been coupled back with, you know, good solid double digit growth. And I'm wondering if that sort of apprehension that you're relatively comfortable, you're not necessarily doing brilliant, but you're just feeling insecure. And that sort of insecurity in some ways is playing out with this, you know, seeking, you know, essentially for what was a problem that was created by in what, you know, you characterize as neoliberalism, but just, you know, like freeing up the market so much that you've let them loose and, you know, individual players became excessively irresponsible. Look, that's also one of the things. And then in maybe the U.S. especially, where, or even Britain, maybe less so Britain, but where you had conventions where, you know, you had a certain... Rel relative confidence that a certain type of person would get elected or make his way to the top office. And you just needed one guy to say, buck the whole convention and, you know, get the nomination. Are you talking about Asif Ali Zardari? So, I mean, he, of course, was played <laughs> into a brilliant corner and he made the most of that space. But, yeah, in, in a way, you're right. I mean, that's not an exact parallel, but it has has echoes of it. <laughs> look, uh, look, I think, you know, you talked about low growth, but even the low unemployment and the low inflation, I mean, what's really, what's driving the low unemployment? Shitty jobs, crap jobs. These, you know, yeah. if, if you're producing more Starbucks and you're hiring, you know, 10 times more baristas, it's not, that's not an economy that's doing particularly well. But, it's better than an economy in which those no jobs don't exist. So if you know, it, it depends on what the benchmark is and, and what 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 our what our aspirations are for ourselves and for the society around us. And I think no, that I agree with that absolutely. You're right. I mean, I, I find the most interesting thing that because I, um, that's an element I missed out. You're right. Is the kind of jobs that came to replace were not terribly great. No, 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 they weren't. The most interesting sort of, you know, um, thing that I learned about China, and in fact, this was something that I learned last year, meaning 2000, and, well, now two years ago, because it's, hey, uh, welcome to 2017. Um, it's uh, it's past midnight. Uh, in, in, towards the end of 2015, I attended a, a conference in China, um, and 
I ha- I happened to be in the in a session with with the with the Chinese premier, and he took an hour and a half to explain what the Communist Party's vision and the government's vision was for China moving forward. And so, rather than being the factory for the world, China wanted to expand and enhance domestic consumption to make domestic consumption more complex and richer. Um, and for that to be the driver of the next phase of China's economic growth. And if you think about domestic consumption, essentially what China's saying is, among other things, uh, that there have to be, that the next wave of job creation is going to be in the services sector, is going to be baristas and waiters and, and, and those sorts of jobs in which people consuming things requires people lining up and doing the things that will help that consumption. So, so it isn't necessarily a bad thing for an economy to be, to be generating those kinds of jobs. But in terms of countries that haven't yet taken the transformational leap that China took maybe a quarter century ago, as, as we start a new year, Fussy, I, you know, my, my principal worry is what is the plan here? What what is there's two hundred million people. We we say that a lot, but what's really and and you worked on this, and I'd love for you to go into a little bit of detail. Just talk about the youth a little bit because you worked on a very significant report on Pakistan's youth, and so you know the numbers inside out. But if I'm not mistaken, there's a hundred million Pakistanis below the age of twenty five. Break that down a little bit. What does that really look like, and and what do we what kind of phase are we entering demographically in, the, in our country? So, I mean, so what I, um, again, off the top of my head, um, just very quickly, uh, it's been some time on that, but what it is is that just uh, the idea of the demographic dividend when the age structure of any society has a much larger proportion of youth, that means, you know, obviously you have to spend less on them in some ways, they don't need healthcare. They're more productive, and that can be an engine of growth. It can also be an engine of instability if you can't provide jobs for them. And in the history of sort of nations, there's that one window. And what they estimated is that the East Asian tigers, when they were at their prime, one third of the growth could have uh, over that period could have been attributed to their age structure, because it was uh, contributing so much in relation to. Uh, you know, uh, how much needed to be sort of put into them. And then in the case of Pakistan, I think we need to grow at a rate of 6% to 7% at a minimum, just so that employment will stay as it is as it is now, which is, uh, I don't know how it's estimated, but it's fairly significant. And in some cases, I think it's underreported and there's also a lot of underemployment. And, uh, this sort of window of time, I think we have till 2040 before the age structure starts to change, which means we have this once in a lifetime opportunity and we have these masses of youth who are not going to be significantly trained or educated to for us to take advantage of that. And by the time it goes on between 2040 and 2050, we'll get to a point where, you know, then you have to start making um, 
those other kind of investments, other countries have Medicaid, whatever, but you'll also find that they're lower, there's lower productivity because if a lot of them are not of terribly high quality human resources, they'll be in the lower end jobs. And that means that, you know, they'll also have to, by then, start taking care of in the Pakistani family structure, you know, their elders is going to be much more of a tighter situation. So I think we've got a mass of people. And then with this mass of people, I think one of the disturbing things from the polling is also is that they're quite disenchanted with democracy in part because I think they don't see that it delivers, but they don't want to engage as much as well. Although that's changed so much with the PTI, which is a good thing. But again, you know, they've put uh, a lot of unrealistic expectations to these people. Uh, they'll be disappointed because this state is really tough to work around. So I think what could be our biggest asset could become a powder cake. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I I wrote, as as you know, I wrote a paper um, on the demographic dividend and Dr. Stiak uh, Ahmed, who's now the vice chancellor at uh, the University of Sargoda, but it was the Pakistan yeah. chair at the at, at Oxford for several years. He'd organized a, a conference, and uh, it was a paper that I presented there. And that's those papers have now been published as as a book, uh, which is very exciting for me. It's always great to be published in in book form, and. I, I, I had a chance to go through the work that you'd done um, and on on this issue, and also a lot of really interesting work that the Pakistan Institute. For I must give credit to the author. I, I end up, I mean, I end up working on some of the, uh, you know, sort of final product, but the real author is David Stevens, who's done most of the work, actually all of it. Well, David, David is based at the NYU uh, Center for International Development, I believe, and is a is a phenomenal. <laughs> phenomenal uh, brain uh, and he knows he knows Pakistan really well um, uh, we both we both have had the privilege of working with him um, the other the other sort of really interesting work that's been done on the demographic dividend fussy and I'm sure you've come across it is is the Pakistan Institute for Development economics they've written a number of really interesting um, forecasts and and predictions about about uh, what the demographic dividend looks like. I think in particular, Nayab's Dure Nayab, Dure work uh, is, is really the basis for my own understanding of the dividend. And basically, Dure Nayab, uh, from, and she's, she's, uh, she's an economist, and she's done a number of papers, but the most important one basically maps out the fact that the demographic, the, the demographic dividend in Pakistan is going to close, the window of opportunity it presents is going to close somewhere around 2043. And so essentially, as, as we start the, the year 2017, we're looking at a quarter century, literally starting today, a quarter century of an opportunity. And the opportunity, as you described, is really simple. Uh, in, in very short terms, the demographic dividend is what happens when you have more people working than you have people who need to be taken care of. So people below the age of 18 and above the age of 60, that total quantum is less than the total number of people that are of a working age, roughly 18 to 60. And that working age then is able to create a surplus because they're essentially, not everybody is 
taking care of at least one person. There are more people in the economy who, who don't have to take care of anyone else. And those are where your rents are created. And those rents then become the basis for the large-scale capital investments and the transformative changes that happen to, a, to an economy and a society when, when, you have that, when you have that luxury. Uh, so the demographic dividend is actually quite a significant time in a country or, or, or society's life. And Pakistan is unique in among big countries uh, because its demographic dividend will last the longest. So, of course, countries like Nigeria and to a much lesser extent, I mean, the windows have already the windows already closed on Russia. The windows closing very fast in a country like Brazil. The windows not closing as fast, but is closing quite soon in India, sooner than Pakistan. It'll close sooner in Bangladesh as well. Now, part of the reason, of course, is that these are countries where the birth rates have slowed down much more significantly than Pakistan's birth rate, and that's a whole different topic of of debate and discourse and discussion. But but essentially. I, I'm not particularly excited about 2016 ending, nor am I particularly excited about 2017 beginning. And it's not because I'm a grouch or because I'm trying to be Scrooge. Uh, and it's not because I'm trying to be different. It's just that when I think about the next quarter century, um, I don't see the level of preparation that this society and this state needs uh, and I don't see any sign of it coming about. One of the reasons why I'm so bored and 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 tired of of the of of the political discourse as it exists today is that neither those that are challenging power, like Imran Khan, and various other powers, nor those folks that are in power, uh, defending sometimes the indefensible, like Panama, uh, like the Panama Papers, uh, none of that debate is centered around what the real focus of, of our energies and attention should be, which is children between the ages of essentially zero and, and 25, young people below the age of 25 who are fast uh, clogging up the employment lines in this country with no employment to be had and not having the skills to create the enterprise and the entrepreneurship that would be a good proxy for uh for standard employment uh I, I, you know one of the things is again going back to david stevens um i mean he's done all the next generation reports he's one of the like you said one of the smartest people i've personally met and i think one of the things that you know i remember him saying is that with things like the demographic dividend one of the problems that sometimes happens is that you see relatively, you know, light touch or ill-informed policymakers think that this is somehow destiny that will accrue to you normally. Whereas the demographic dividend, I mean, like David was at pains to sort of mention, was that it has to be earned. You have to put in systemized inputs into your population if you're going to accrue this thing. And I think one of the other things is also that I think we're in a race with the number of countries that you've just spoken about to become old before we become rich. Because the whole idea, you know, for the East Asian tigers was that during that period with that kind of population structure, getting the investment right, you know, they were able to transition from 
low middle income countries to like relatively better off ones they're still struggling they've had issues in between and i agree and i and i i think that's one thing but i think one thing that's becoming clearer is something i'm not that well versed on but water is going to be a massive issue and it's going to be one that i think may even hit us before the effects of not taking care of this youth bulge and investing in them um we're already water stressed and you know there are parts of we normally see Af- africa in our tainted lens as dry as you know sort of the more stereotypical images of famine of drought and whatever but you know there are lots of countries which probably have the same level of water per person as we do or and some which have more and the rate at which sort of our water table i was just speaking to somebody today and they were just talking about you know how boring is like this uh you know water tends to be done at a community level or a um local level or you know through the municipal corporations whatever but we've got so many people bypassing and just boring and we've got the water table dropping we're wasting all the water just because we're not able to keep it the stats i don't remember but you know you need to have also a certain reservoir of water and uh, apparently we have a very critically low if something did hit us in 2 3 months we would be in you know basically almost an existential situation where um the whole edifice you know the army everything won't matter because we'll be so critically endangered it's a it's a quite scary scenario and i think it's quite easy for a lot of folks to dismiss this as scaremongering because these scenarios are hard to conceive of but i bet you anything before the tutsis and the hutus went at it in the way that they did in rwanda if somebody had described those images and those scenes even 6 months prior to them actually happening people would have laughed it off the mainstream would have Absolutely. laughed it off oh, that's a good point I think yeah. that and I think this is that's just it. I think that one of the reasons why and this is maybe a good note to end on uh I'll leave it totally to you but one of the reasons we started this this effort the reason we wanted to do a podcast that wasn't concerned about uh advertising revenue that wasn't worried about owners talking into our ear about TRPs and about specific issues and that wasn't really concerned about anybody's feelings in particular was was to maybe try to shine a light on issues in a different way than than you would normally get in the mainstream media and given that we've both been associated with the mainstream media for as long as we have um we felt that we had some degree of facility in in trying to navigate that space but i i i would end i would end the year and and start the new year really on a on a kind of somber and and perhaps maybe a less than ideal uh, and less than optimistic note and that is that i'm not sure that the voice that we've tried to capture or project um has any real has any real salience or or uh, in fact the kind of cadence that 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 probably is required to get 
top level political bureaucratic uh, you know and institutional attention on these issues in the way that they should and and to my mind that is not as much it's not a failure of the podcast it's not really a failure of the medium I think it's the failure of, of the messengers I think that uh, for me if I have a new year's resolution it would be that we need to be better at convincing those that make decisions to make decisions that are aligned with the realities of the world as 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 road scholars like yourself see them rather than uh, rather than blaming people for not doing the right thing i think we need to blame ourselves for not being able to convince people to do the right thing yeah i mean uh... If it's a question of that, I think on a much more micro level, I think one of the benefits is just having a therapeutic forum just to talk. And I think during the past year, especially, we've had some really interesting guests. And I think um, I always go back to it, but I've often, uh, you know, just one of the benefits is just being able to speak, disagree, and then, you know, keep it civil. And uh, hopefully that at least, I mean, when you have lofty aims, but you've got to have, you know, the bare minimum that you'd agree that this is what I need in order for this to get by. And um, that, at least so far, I've been quite happy with. Look, I've been quite happy with the privilege and the opportunity to talk to you regularly and uh, through our sort of collective network to be able to engage uh, friends, colleagues, and people who we didn't know all that well in in meaningful conversations about what they do and what their take on the world is and to try and explain Pakistan to ourselves and to our listeners in a, in a slightly different way. What was your favorite conversation through How to Pakistan in 2016, Fassi? So mine was Pratap Banu Mehta, and I go back to that episode partly because I thought it was an education. Uh, I didn't want it to stop when it did, and uh, it's it's amazing to see someone who has a facility to take ideas as complex and nuanced as his and just be able to explain it. So I, I, I thought... It was also a demonstration of what somebody should aim to be if they have something to say. And in his case, especially being as well-read and well-versed as he was, because you tend to have this problem where once you get into something deeply, the complexity of it tends to uh, hobble the way you can subsequently explain it because you're searching for so many uh, different ways to encapsulate all the different points and nuances. And his ability to deliver that with sort of the crispest and clearest of, uh, you know, sentences. I don't know. I, I keep going back to that and I keep thinking, okay, uh, that was amazing. Well, Pratap really was exceptional. Um, he he only reconfirmed for me what I what I knew about him and knew of him prior to that conversation, which is that he really is. I continue to think the premier public intellectual uh, on 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 the world scene today. Um, 
and I think it's a tragic tragedy that uh, people like him are uh, are boxed into India because I think his ideas and the way that he thinks uh, has resonance and relevance for the whole world. But that wasn't my favorite conversation on how to Pakistan, uh, Fussy. My favorite conversation on how to Pakistan was, I think it was a tie. I'd like to say it was a tie, but it really wasn't. It was close, and I'll, I'll talk about my second favorite. But Sanamir talking to us on how to Pakistan. Just, yeah, she was brilliant. I mean, she just, you know, I think it's so rare to be able to witness and to engage with somebody who not only stands out for the specificity of what they do and what they've achieved, but also for what they what they mean uh, at a macro level. And she is, her energy and, and her honesty and just her vibe is, one of the coolest things that you know I've ever engaged with, and I thought that uh, that she absolutely knocked it out of the park and made made this podcast uh, you know a much better version of itself uh, for 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 having for having been part of it and for for talking to us. And ironically, I think not that you know I, I often tell people that I talk a little bit about cricket, but it's really just the Pakistani in me that that engages with cricket, so it's really a nationalistic pursuit. But the other one that I really, really liked was Usman Samyuddin. Um, what a brilliant guy. Yeah. yeah. And, and and that's exactly it. I think because in that conversation, I think you, if, if you follow cricket closely, and especially Pakistani cricket, you already know that he's he's an exceptional reporter, a very good writer, and a really passionate student of the game and student of the game's history. But in that conversation, uh, you know, what it reinforced to me was what a wonderful human being he is as well and so i think so much of his success is really is down to just being awesome you know just being so, fun, i mean i'll fun to really talk add to. something that just occurred to me now is that when i look at all three whether it's sanamir or usman or pratab was that between all three of them one of the striking things which is sort of additional to their individual um um their individual sort of uh I don't know how I'd put it, sort of their individual characteristics that are, you know, sort of uh, really brilliant. But what is common to them is sort of a humility in achievement. And I think that in its own is a worthy achievement because when you look at Sana or when you look at Osman, I think uh, both of them had that in droves uh, and so did Pratab, which was that that's sort of like the exceptional character that, and then subsequently the exceptional achievement in each of their fields had not divorced them from being just down to earth, uh, being accessible in a way that I think isn't all that common. I, I think it's actually, it's actually quite rare. And I think that's a brilliant, uh, it's a brilliant observation. Uh, I found that that same thing was was present in in our conversation with the with our friend um, Salim Salim Safi. Um, uh, you know, there was a real there was a realness to the way that he uh, that he talked to us that I really really enjoyed. Um, and I think then we I'd also add Ahmad Rashid, which was. Um, 
an episode where I think somebody who is sort of on the far left of Pakistan is in a relatively sort of minority uh, political viewpoint to a degree. And when you asked him about all the parts of how having a political movement or sort of a political ideology or at least value sets such as his, which have trouble, uh, which have like significant trouble being relatable to the general population, even though it speaks to their interests and his ability to answer, acknowledge, and then explain, you know, how they see that as not just being, you know, sort of like these guys who are in their own pocket, who have their own integrity, but they're not willing to take that or make any compromises to reach, to reach larger audiences. And I, I found the way that he addressed that was very refreshing and it uh, took the sting out of like sort of a very easy mischaracterization of some of the work that, you know, the left and the progressives do in this country. Yeah, I mean, now that now that we're talking about it, suddenly, you know, a whole range of other names are sort of popping up in terms of amazing conversations. I, you know, the reason I can't comment too much on Amadashi is I, I actually love the guy. He, you know, he, he, again, it's weird, but the ones that we're talking about, these people have so much integrity that I think that's what, that's what makes them stand out, at least for me. Uh, Ahmad, Ahmad is, is great, not because he's a leftist, but because what he believes yeah. in, he believes in fully, and, and he doesn't believe in as a, as a chant, you know, or as, as just something that, you know, is, uh, is purely ideological. Um, there's a lot of integrity in how he puts together. I, I, you know, for me, one of, one of the, you know, one of the people that, uh, has always uh, inspired me and, and really um, somebody that I that I really look up to in terms of integrity is, uh, is Ijaz Heather and we had two great conversations with Ijaz as well. Oh yeah, that was absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I have a very strong. I, I continue to have a very strong opinion about about guns, and I and I really, honestly, whether it's you or Ijaz or anybody else that's into guns, I, I just. Uh, it makes me pause and, and question people when they're into guns, you know. But uh, but uh, but that notwithstanding, again, I mean, I mean, I mean, even on that, when I think back on it, look. Uh, so I I share some opinions with him on that, and and I, I think a lot of his opinions. I mean, when you hear him flesh them out they are eminently reasonable to the extent that I think even most gun control advocates would agree. So, for example, I think the only thing that we would probably disagree on is on certain types of ammunition which disintegrate and create much, uh, very extensive damage to flesh and things like that. But, but the fact that, you know, even he doesn't see the need of an automatic weapon, which should only be used probably in the context of wartime, whereas it's not amenable to sport. It's not for anything else. I mean, he doesn't believe in hunting and, you know, he, he's somebody who practices a sport, which is, I mean, the, extent to which I think he was sort of advocating for it. And I think that was sort of a depth that, you know, we hadn't understood prior to speaking to him about that. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that conversation. 
Um, if we keep going, we'll end up mentioning every single one of our conversations because, frankly, each one of them, especially those in which you know other folks came in, uh, I, I think particularly of the one in which Salman Akramraja and Faisal Nakvi uh, participated, also the one in which uh, Nadeem and Afiazia, of course, also the one in which Nadeem and uh, Rafi Alam participated. So we've really been yeah. privileged, I think, Fasi, we've really been privileged to have so many of uh, of our countries, and and not just our countries, but people from other countries. Andrew Small talked to talked to us about China. Absolutely. Spencer Ackerman talked to us about the Trump election, um, and of course Shashank Joshi and Sadanand Dume uh, talked to us during the worst, uh, sort of in the hottest uh, period when the LOC was hot and and India and Pakistan seemed like they were. They were uh, champing at the bit to, to go at it. Um, it's just been a privilege all around. But like I said earlier, and I'll, like I'll say again, uh, the greatest privilege is to share this time in the space with you. Um, and so among all the wonderful things that I've been like blessed that. with, this is a real blessing. So thank you for doing this with me and uh, for taking this journey with me. Thanks, of course, to all the listeners who, who've helped make this podcast into something that we are forced to come back to over and over again because we love we love talking to you all. Um, that's uh, that's it for me, Fussy. Any any thoughts as you close out 2016 and welcome 2017? Just that. Let's hope. Uh, you know, I think even if we got more of the same, that would be a win this year. So. Uh, with that relatively unambitious note, I think we should close the program and 2016, uh, we'll come back with the material. See you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a safe and productive 2017.